In the current situation, one thing that it is absolutely doing is shedding light on the fact that space systems are being attacked because of their role as critical infrastructure and critical communication channels out to the broader population of a country. And so we're seeing that in real time in this regional conflict in a way that we've never seen it before. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hi, podcasters. Unless you're living in a cave, all of our social media feeds have been filled with images, videos, and other near real-time documentation of Russia's war, its invasion of Europe's largest country, Ukraine, TV news anchors, and retired generals explaining the satellite imagery produced by Planet and Maxar are now regular features of the West's information landscape. By contrast, Russia has shuttered independent news outlets, used cyber tools to block social media channels and Western news websites. Information has always been a domain of war, so it's no wonder Russia has degraded or destroyed Ukraine's regular means of communications, including those to and through satellites. In a personal bid to ensure Ukraine stays connected to the world, Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, is supplying Ukraine's government with Starlink broadband internet satellite terminals and signal coverage. Musk also said SpaceX is taking measures to ensure signals can't be jammed or otherwise compromised, say from a cyber attack. Fiasat figured that out the hard way. It's a giant satellite communications company headquartered in Carlsbad, California. On Monday, it said its broadband service to Ukraine and parts of Europe was interrupted by what it suspects was a cyber attack on its ground segment. To understand what the space community is facing as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine, I spoke with Frank Bacchus, Senior Vice President of Kratos Federal Space and Board Chair of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or Space ISAC and Sam Visner, a technical fellow at the MITRE Corporation and the vice chair of the Space ISAC and the organization's executive director, Aaron Miller. But first, we're going to hear from Dan Dumbacher, the executive director of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or AIAA. Hello, Dan. It's great to have you back. Hello, Laura. It's always a privilege to be talking with you. As you know, this is a tough time. Why don't we just jump right in? Dan, didn't the AIAA put out a response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yes, Laura, we put out a statement the other day that fundamentally condemns uh, Russia's recent invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, We consider Ukraine a sovereign nation. Uh, We stand in solidarity with the Ukrainian people uh, throughout this conflict, and we call for and hope for and a just and quick end of the conflict and the restoration of the peace. We are uh, an international aerospace community, and the global community has enjoyed a lot of progress over the last several decades uh, with all of the partnerships and the international cooperation is a hallmark of our profession and industry. We do have members in both the Ukraine uh, and Russia out of our 30,000 members. Uh, And they make significant contributions to the aerospace profession. And and as you can imagine, we are concerned about their health and safety uh, and their livelihoods, and we hope the best for them. We also stated 
that we have been co-sponsors of the St. Petersburg International Conference on Integrated Navigation Systems, or ICINS, since its inauguration. We have suspended our co-sponsorship of that event for the 29th this year and the 30th occurrences of the event. Uh, Obviously, that can change depending on developments, but we have pulled our co-sponsorship of that event. And so we look forward, uh, we hope to see a quick and just and peaceful resolution. To get to things a bit more close to their home in a way, we know Putin has threatened consequences as you have never experienced in your history, he said. And while everyone is focused rightly on the nuclear part of this threat, there are other modes of attack that would achieve a historic effect. As an example, the loss of the global positioning system would cost the U.S. economy alone $1 billion a day, and that's just in 2019 dollars. And earlier this week, Viasat, which our listeners should know is a U.S. satellite operator that has a number of DOD contracts, including a $50.8 million agreement with the Air Force Research Laboratory to research integration between government and commercial satellite networks. Yet Viasat is investigating whether it was the victim of a cyber attack that caused a broadband network outage in Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe on Monday. Have you heard anything more about this? And what are you hearing from the AIAA's membership? Is this just an isolated case? I have, We have not heard anything more on that case, uh, Laura. We, or any other specific cases per se, our membership uh, has been clear through several different sources about how important this issue is and why it's important to the aerospace community which is why we have taken on some activities to to continue to grow the, uh, as we say, at the strong cyber hygiene and space operations throughout the life cycles of spacecraft and and how we need to include that in the manufacturing design and production uh, of everything we do. This, uh, it is a concerning threat and it is one that uh, you see the aerospace profession paying more and more attention to. Russia's state-run and off-book cyber warriors are a well-known, inexpensive, yet very potent threat. And knowing that space is a critical infrastructure, despite, well, not being named as such, what are you telling your organization's members in light of this invasion? You know, are you telling them anything different? And the sanctions and, prom- you know, Putin's promises to hit back. Pretty much our members, our organizational members, uh, all pretty much handle uh, their respective, the respect, the threat in their own respective way based on their own unique situation. What we try to do uh, is help underscore uh, the, the broad implications and the need for the aerospace community to raise the awareness, to raise the attention level uh, to the threat so that the systems prepared and developed by the aerospace industry are protected and better protected for the future. We, as an institute, AIAA, pretty much, we stay out of the the individual or unique instances. We leave that to the institutions because that's where the best knowledge and uh, decision authority is. Roscosmos, the Russian state-run space corporation, its head, Dmitry Rogozin, has been active on Twitter, you know, making threats to the International Space Station. But just today, Thursday, 
he announced that all deliveries of Russian-made rockets have been halted, and those rockets already in the U.S. will not be serviced. You know, we're lucky that in general there is more than one launch service provider for defense, civil, and commercial launch needs. But more broadly, how are sanctions affecting the commercial space sector? There were a number of companies that had launch contracts with Roscosmos. No. Uh, Yes, there are uh, several partnerships and relationships built up uh, with the Russians on several different fronts. I think uh, one of the immediate issues you see is the is the change in the OneWeb launch that was originally scheduled for tomorrow uh, and that being delayed. I'm sure there are others that uh, are still being worked through and addressed. This is uh, this is going to be unique. Uh, It's going to be a challenge. Uh, And I think time will tell, and it's going to take some time to work through all of the implications and what the proper responses are. Perhaps I'm being overly optimistic, which I know sounds a bit strange in this context, but despite sanctions and Russia's response, I can see a temporary slowing in the commercial space sector's growth. But I'd also imagine that, you know, we can at least see U.S. space companies as well as others seeing this situation as a growth opportunity, you know, to receive development underwriting from, say, the Department of Defense, as well as filling the void like SpaceX likely becoming the sole U.S. astronaut launch provider unless Boeing is, you know, able to do something more. But that this gives more impetus more space for uh, other companies outside, you know, launch companies and otherwise to expand their business. That may be true. Uh, I will leave the the market assessment to the market professionals. The uh, I am sure at this point uh, our industry is really focused on how best to respond to the need, the immediate needs that are there today, uh, particularly uh, to continue uh, the operations that are in place and also to support. Uh, the United States government in in its activities and its priorities so that we can continue to to help support and work towards a resolution to the conflict. How this all plays out from the long-term business sense, I think uh, that remains to be seen, but our members, uh, I am confident, are more focused on the immediate needs and making sure that uh, we get to safe, peaceful resolution and and, and work to get back to what normal was prior to the conflict. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, the Ukrainian space sector, and I have read reports that some Ukrainian space companies were able to get their employees out, and some of them, I believe, are actually in Italy. Is there anything more on that? Is there any organizing to you know help them or to you know bring them to places like the United States or or anywhere else so that they you know have jobs as well as a home as well as you know the ability to contribute contributing? Uh, Nothing more than uh, what you've mentioned that I'm aware of. I do think uh, uh, there will be progress made from an overall perspective, again, in concert with U.S. government policy uh, and approaches. So AIAA stands ready to support those activities uh, should they uh, arise and should they be needed. But AIAA is here to to support our members, uh, both individual as well as organizational, and we will do what we need to do uh, as our members come and request support. That has not occurred yet. I think everyone is is working through the current situation, a very volatile situation, and 
and, and working through what needs to be done and what the right thing is to do. And, and we will stand by to, to support those activities as, the, as they arise. Dan, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Always glad to talk with you, Laura. And now, my discussion with leading members and the executive director of the Space ISAC. Hi, Sam. It's good to connect again. And hello, Aaron and Frank. Welcome to the Downlink. Good to see you, Laura. Thanks for uh, spending time with us today. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Laura. Look forward to the conversation. First, let's do a round of introductions. Frank, why don't you start and also explain what the Space ISAC is? Um, good morning. I'm Frank Backus, uh, the Senior Vice President of Kratos Federal Space, and um, I'm also the Chairman of the Board for the Space ISAC. The Space ISAC is an organization that focuses on communicating and coordinating activities in the space sector. And our primary focus is to address threats to the space critical infrastructure, communicate how to mitigate against those threats, and coordinate activities across the commercial, international, and federal space communities. Sam, why don't you tell us what you're doing now? You've got such a long and interesting background. I'm not sure if you can give us the elevator pitch, but try. Well, thank you, Laura. Um, I'm Sam Visner. I'm a tech fellow at MITRE, which is a not-for-profit that operates some of our country's federally funded research and development centers. I'm also the vice chair of the board of directors of the Space ISAC, of which Frank Packus is, is the chair. And I'm an adjunct professor of cybersecurity policy operations and technology at Georgetown University. And I've run a couple of cybersecurity businesses. Laura, what has consumed me more than anything else over the last couple of years really is the security and resilience of the space systems on which our nation depends for its national security, its economic security, its economic competitiveness, its critical infrastructure, its global commitments. So that's why I think this is such a very important conversation. Thank you. And Aaron, tell us about where you are and what you're doing and what you do with the Space ISAC. Sure. Thanks, Laura. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Space ISAC, and I'm running the organization we only launched in 2019. So we're still building up a lot of operational capability, but it is exactly for this purpose of protecting our uh, space systems and our national security. So I'm very pleased to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me. Most people are rightly focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the situation on the ground, the millions of refugees seeking safety, both inside Ukraine and in countries that share a border. It's in this context that we're here to discuss the security of space assets. On Monday, Viasat said it believes a cyber attack may have caused an outage of its satellite broadband services to Ukraine and parts of Eastern Europe. Russia state cyber groups, Russian criminal cyber groups are reportedly very active. Anonymous has claimed that it has even taken control of one of Russia's spy satellites. Frank, you work with Kratos. What is your company seeing? What is the current level of the threat generally and then specifically to space operators? So to, to address that particular type of threat against um, space system, um, cyber threats against space systems can manifest themselves in um, multiple ways. Um, one way is a traditional um, cyber attack against the terrestrial or ground network that supports our space systems so that we can communicate to them across the RF spectrum from an antenna on the ground to the satellite um, orbiting the Earth. 
But that RF signal connection, radio frequency connection between the ground and the spacecraft is also a vulnerability that can be attacked and show up as um, very much like a denial of service attack. In this case, um, they might use RF interference to interfere with that signal. Um, and sometimes they're interfering with the command and control of that vehicle orbiting the Earth, or they might be um, interfering with the download or uplink of data um, that is controlling the payload on that satellite. Um, the payload on that, those satellites might be Earth observation payloads or communication payloads. Um, in the case of a Viasat, that would be a commercial communications payload that is used heavily for broadcast TV or other commercial satellite communications in the region. Many countries around the world are very dependent on space communications because they don't necessarily have a terrestrial deployed communications infrastructure. And so those space downlinks are very critical. Certainly from a broadcast TV standpoint, the space communications is in many cases, the only mechanism for distributing a broadcast TV signal. And that can hamper a country's ability to communicate with its citizens and let them know what's going on in their country. And these are the kinds of things that we're seeing today between the Ukraine and Russia. We've seen it in the past between North and South Korea. These are typical approaches to impacting a country's ability to communicate with their citizens um, and keep people informed as to what's going on. Kratos operates a global sensor network that monitors for this type of activity. And we certainly are seeing that kind of activity in the region during this regional conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. Have you seen an uptick towards attacks on U.S. companies or U.S. organizations? We have. Um, we've absolutely seen a, you know, we, and we saw that uptick start um, actually a couple of months ago where there were, I'm going to say, more testing of the impact of attacks. And now we're seeing more consistent changes to the behavior um, in the way that those communications infrastructures are being used. In, in many cases, you have UAVs that the Ukrainians are using to protect themselves against Russian forces. Those UAVs use commercial satellite signals, commercial satellite communications to control, operate, and downlink data or uplink data for, from those UAVs. Um, and those are being impacted as well. Aaron, you speak with your organization's members daily. What's the mood in your community, especially after the most recent alerts sent out by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA? What are they telling you? Yeah, Laura, so what I think that this situation does is it causes more of an intense sense of urgency around uh, launching Space ISAC's Watch Center. So it's not unexpected like that things like this are occurring that are impacts to space systems. That's actually why we launched the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center starting in 2019. And uh, we recognize that space systems are vulnerable to threats and incidents that can affect the terrestrial layer and the space layer. Uh, so as we're uh, in this time, then, as I said, we have this intense sense of urgency. We've had it before, so this is not actually new, but um, our members are really eager to see us launch the Watch Center and achieve initial operational capabilities so that we are able to share threats and vulnerabilities across the global uh, space community. So primarily focused on U.S. and its allies, uh, we've 
brought this community together and we're asking them for specific use cases. So what do they see as the particular threat that might impact their space systems and how can the Watch Center help support that, uh, especially as we lean towards IOC, but even in the future, we will continue to collect use cases of how space systems are impacted for decades to come. And that IOC term, Laura, I want to just make sure people understand IOC is our initial operating capability for the space ISAC. And of course, that leads to a normal conversation or question that everybody always asks, what's the definition of FOC or our final operating capability? And quite frankly, that's something that um, for us as the space ISAC community will will always be changing um, because the threats to our space systems continue to change. Um, so we will continue to develop the watch center to react to those threats. Generally speaking, either Frank or Aaron, what will happen when you reach IOC? I mean, what 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 sort of activities will the space ISAC then be doing? Yeah. So right now we're intending, actually, let me tell you what we do today. And then I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to be adding as our capability at IOC. So today we are uh, currently issuing daily and weekly information products. So we're notifying our members already about information regarding attacks from state actors and non-state actors and mitigations to those attacks. And what we're intending to do at IOC and what we're building right now is an infrastructure that will support the collection of different data sources. And those data sources will inform us about uh, nation state actors activities as well as uh, RF interference, potential implications for ransomware attacks and uh, anomalies that are seen in telemetry coming from uh, owner operators of satellite systems. So the goal here is to be able to provide information to our analysts that will allow them to uh, send out alerts and notices that provide timely actionable information to our members so they can, in that moment they receive that alerts, they can start immediately moving towards protecting their space system. Sam, I want to revisit Viasat's situation, not simply because it's in the news, but also because it's one of many space companies that have contracts with the Department of Defense. One such Viasat contract is for researching how to integrate government and commercial satellite networks. That would mean connecting legacy assets on orbit with newer commercial owned and operated satellite and ground segments. It feels like we've covered this ground in the past, but doesn't this just expand the attack surface and create more vulnerabilities, especially for systems that were created in a relatively benign era? Well, Laura, that's a great question. I think you can look at it in a couple of ways. So first things first, it is unavoidable that the commercial space platforms are becoming dominant in terms of the numbers of platforms on orbit. We have somewhat 4,000 plus satellites in orbit today. Over 2,000 of them belong to one specific commercial constellation alone. And we're seeing more and more companies like Planet have more orbital imagers uh, in service than any other Earth observation or Earth imaging uh, constellation at all. So you're seeing an enormous expansion in the number and type and diversity and capability of commercial systems. A colleague of ours on the board of the Space ISAC made a very interesting point the other day, and I want to repeat it as context for answering your question. And that is, he said that the cost per kilogram for getting something in orbit is plummeting. It's going way down. And the capability per kilogram is going way up. 
So we're going to be seeing more and more things. Some of them will be quite small, and they're going to have more and more capability. Take a look at, again, the imaging capabilities that you're seeing from, from Maxar and from Planet, particularly in the context of the current uh, uh, conflict uh, in, in, in the Ukraine. Now, I guess what this means is, yes, you do have an expanded attack surface. On the other hand, the other thing it means is that you have expanded possibilities for communication and capability. You're not dependent on a, on, a, on a specific system. There are reports right now that SpaceX is putting 5G terminals into the area of conflict in the Ukraine, providing that country potentially with additional communications capability You know, using a, a 5G constellation. So yes, some of these systems may have been engineered at a time when the environment looked a little bit more benign than it does now, but many new systems are going up. These systems probably, in my view, may provide a great deal of redundancy. And if the work of the space ISAC and the industry is successful, and I believe it will be, we will do a better job of improving the security and resilience of all of those systems, their operating systems, the mission systems, even the back office business systems behind them. So yes, it's possible that we will see attacks against uh, constellations uh, such as uh, the ones operated by Viasat and others. But I think we're also going to see a great deal of additional resiliency. Frank made a point a moment ago that bears uh, repeating, and that was that in some cases, these constellations or are providing connectivity and capability in areas where there is no other capability. And to that extent, it would seem to me that we can regard this as an additional aspect of our continuity of operations in these environments. And that's my point of view. The title of the CISO alert released just in the week prior to Russia's invasion said it all. Russian state-sponsored cyber actors target clear defense contractor networks to obtain sensitive U.S. defense information and technology. Sam, you've told me in the past that no company can fend off a state-backed actor indefinitely, at least not alone. Where does that leave us and, and, and how, how can we bolster a single company that might be in need? That's a good question, Laura. Look, good security and resilience, and in my case, let's say cybersecurity, but all security and resilience is absolutely a team sport. And it really is. And I stand by that comment. First things first, that Russia and other countries would always be targeting sensitive information that they can get from defense contractors, from the nation's critical infrastructure, there is certainly heightened concern now, but that has always been the case. It's the reason there's a defense industrial base program, which goes back any number of years in programs like CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Effort. The existence of ISACs, including, by the way, the space ISAC, is a strong and clear statement of recognition that this has to be done together. And the companies who've joined the ISAC, and that, and there's been a, a real increase uh, over the last couple of years since we've been founded, it's grown quite rapidly, and is recognition that companies don't want to do this on their own. They want to share some best practices about what works and, frankly, what doesn't work as well. They want to share between themselves and have access to what the public sector can share with them the latest threat information and the latest vulnerability information, because they know that space is not just an individual company or a group of companies. Space systems are a sector. And at some level, the sector has a common interest and needs to work together. 
In the case of security and resilience, that common interest has been evident actually for quite a long time, but it's certainly more evident now given the, given the, the current geopolitical situation. So I think better, you know, better shared analysis, better shared information dissemination, a better shared threat warning, better shared situational awareness of the type that Frank Backus just described, I think is all to the good. And getting back to the Watch Center, that Watch Center is a resource for the industry and for the nation, not for any individual company. And that, again, is a statement that we recognize that this is going to be a team, uh, a team sport. And Laura, just to be clear where, where you know, I stand on this, we need to amplify the effort to gain recognition for space systems as truly critical. There is no question that the nation's critical func- the national critical functions depend almost all of them on space systems, whether or not it's maritime systems or agricultural systems, transportation systems or anything else. So the current geopolitical situation heightens our concern about this, but it's been true for some time that the nation's infrastructure depends on space systems, and probably it's time for us to give that formal recognition. You know, as you just said that this is a team sport and, you know, space is for everybody, not even just one nation, but, you know, for for the planet. This next question is really for anyone, but how much does the U.S. Space Force coordinate or relay what they see as an immediate threat to the commercial community? And I'm not just talking about for contracts, for what the U.S. Space Force needs or, or even space debris, but rather just plain, simple situational awareness. I mean, are they communicating with you guys? So uh, let me take that one first, um, Laura. The challenge that the um, Space Force has um, and many U.S. government agencies have is that a lot of the information that they capture from a threat perspective to space systems is due to the monitoring that they do against national assets and national security assets um, within their constellations. So as an example, um, GPS satellites or military SATCOM satellites or the overhead persistent infrared satellites When a threat is identified against those types of assets, typically speaking, that threat and the profile of that threat is a classified piece of information because it's a threat against a national security system. Um, And so in many cases, it is very difficult to share that information quickly to the international and commercial industry, you know, space sector as a whole. And so one of the things that the space ISAC is focusing on is working with unclassified sources of information and working with U.S. agencies to declassify information um, and break up the vulnerability itself from the system that it is being or that is being threatened so that we can reduce the overall classification of the information. Um, So it is a, a bit of a complicated process to get out a public releasable piece of information about a threat against space systems. Um, and so though that's one of the policy areas and process areas that the Space ISAC is trying to address overall. Clearly, if we're working with unclassified sources, um, the Space ISAC will have the ability to communicate that information much more quickly. Um, and that's why in the Watch Center, during our initial operating capability, we have multiple phenomenology of types of threats being brought into the watch center that are unclassified. Microsoft is participating with their terrestrial internet security, a global network, monitoring network, 
and the threats against systems from that standpoint. SES, a communication satellite company, um, is providing telemetry information against their orbiting satellites. Kratos is providing RF interference um, and maneuvering and position information that is all unclassified. So what we're trying to do is bring together many different sources, many different phenomenologies of threats into an unclassified environment so those threats can be communicated much more quickly. And Frank, I would imagine that this current conflict in Russia's state and criminal cyberspace capabilities must be doing more than highlight the necessity of securing supply chains and code. You know, what does the commercial space sector need to do to batten down the hatches? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it's very challenging, right, to narrow down, I'm going to say very tactically, what, what specific things can you do? But without question, there are um, security standards that any company in the space sector can be deploying within their organizations. Um, NIST identified standards and IEEE standards around security that can bolster their security from their organization perspective. Um, And that's always a good first step. Um, And that's part of what we try to get out into the community as well. But the most, one of the most important components is to understand specific threats as well so that we can be prepared for those and put those mitigation approaches in place before the threat hits the organization. Um, we saw that very much um, in the last couple of years with ransomware attacks, right? And there are mitigation techniques against ransomware attacks. And so our goal is to be able to specifically identify a threat or an attack and help the companies get to an appropriate response to prepare for that threat before it hits their own organization. So if one, let's say, launch company or one satellite communication satellite company is being threatened, our goal is to work toward a mitigation for that and communicate that to the other companies that might be threatened in a similar way. Sam, you have written extensively about supply chains and cybersecurity for space operations, and you've lobbied for the Department of Homeland Security to go beyond Special Presidential Directive 5 and designate space assets as a national critical infrastructure. Do you think this example of Russian aggression will get us closer to a better policy? It's hard to uh, predict what's going to happen specifically in Washington, Laura, but conceivably, I've, I've argued for quite a while, and I think I'm not alone in this. I think a number of my colleagues would agree that space as a domain really is a, a domain of great powers competition. Other countries see our dependence on space systems potentially as a vulnerability, and at the same time, they see uh, their use of space systems as an advantage. And countries have demonstrated an increasingly sophisticated ability to operate in space and recently demonstrated the ability to damage other countries' space systems and leave a whole heck of a lot of debris around uh, up in space as, as they do so. The current situation, I think, makes clear that we are still in an era of great power competition and that not every great power shares our values or our interests. And I think it also makes clear that our role and status as a great power, our national security, our economic security, our ability to project power and our ability to make good on our global commitments depends in large part on our space systems, and not just on space systems lofted by the government, but space systems that are lofted by America's industry and that of its partners and allies. So it seems to me that, broadly speaking, the answer is yes. The current situation is perhaps, is, I think, likely 
to heighten people's awareness of the criticality of space systems and the need to pay as much attention as we possibly can to their protection, to their security and resilience. Will this translate into any formal action? Who can say? But there is legislation in Congress that would require this designation. Other legislation in Congress that talks about building a clearinghouse, and I think that's a role that the, that the space ISAC clearly can help play, because in, to some extent, that's exactly what the Watch Center is going to be doing. And we're already doing it out of the ISAC. And with the Watch Center, we're going to build up a more formal and, 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 and efficient process for doing so. So I guess what I would say is it could make it more likely. Possibly it will. It's certainly whether or not there's a formal designation, people are going to pay more attention. And if they take actions consistent with paying more attention, whether or not there's a formal designation becomes perhaps less important. Although I think a formal designation might be helpful in assigning more responsibility, making more resources available, and having a greater and more current level of accountability. What are the vulnerabilities? What are the threats? What's being done to mitigate them? And, and is there a timeline for getting it done? And the current situation might accelerate that process. And the current situation, one thing that it is absolutely doing is shedding light on the fact that space systems are being attacked because of their role as critical infrastructure and critical communication channels out to the broader population of a country. And so we're seeing that in real time in this regional conflict in a way that we've never seen it before. Aaron, I hate to mention age, but you are the one who is going to drive this issue into the future. People say space is the Wild West, and in an area that has few rules with tens of thousands of new assets to be launched within the decade, that's certainly an opening for adversaries, not just Russia, but China and Iran too. Do we simply need regulation to ensure that everyone gets serious about supply chain visibility and security or and cybersecurity? Oh, what a great question. So the way that I view it is that since we have uh, we have brought up a generation right now that exists that does understand technology and understands our dependency on technology, we need to just keep taking it a step further. And we need to have the next generation see that cybersecurity by definition includes our space assets because we're all so interconnected. All of these uh, systems are so interconnected and we are all so interconnected and tied together through all of our devices. Uh, we're at a point where all of our citizens are dependent upon space systems and yet citizens across the world don't necessarily understand. Um, I do appreciate what Frank just said is that we're seeing this live real time that uh, we have this earthbound reliance on space systems and uh, people can see it in the news media and actually reflect on the fact that it is critical infrastructure, it impacts their daily life and they need um, the space systems to operate and be protected and be secured. So I think greater visibility and education over the long run is what's required uh, to embed security into our mindset going forward. I'm saving my weird question for last, and it's open to all or any one of you to answer. We know that unlike anti-satellite tests, it's notoriously difficult to identify the origin of a cyber attack. We also know that Russia is keen to employ false flags. Rogozin is now dressing up in military gear and said Thursday that a cyber attack on Russian space systems would be a casus belli. Does that worry you? 
I'll certainly start with that. It absolutely worries us. Um, I'm going to say the misinformation associated with these types of attacks can be very challenging to deal with. One of the most important aspects of tracking down a cybersecurity attack is the attribution component. Um, one of the things that the data that Kratos will be providing into the Watch Center and Microsoft and SES into the Watch Center is information that will be used to be able to attribute specifically those attacks and where they're coming from. So in, in, as you know, in the example of a RF interference type of attack or an RF attack through the cybersecurity connection to a satellite, one of the goals, one of the things that um, we do have the ability to do is geolocate that attack and address it specifically. What terminal, what, what antenna is that attack coming through? And that helps us with that attribution. It is a very challenging problem, um, but that is definitely one of the problem sets um, that we're focused on being able to solve is to determine where those attacks are coming from and then apply the appropriate pressure, whether it's diplomatic or military, you know, the military construct in the case of the Ukraine and Russia, they need to know where those attacks are coming from. Um, and the Space ISAC won't be providing that specifically on a military basis, but certainly from a commercial international and end user perspective, we need to understand where those attacks are coming from. I want to echo that. One of the things that, that is important in today's world uh, from a geopolitical perspective, Laura, is the avoidance of miscalculation and making mistakes based on miscalculation and lack of transparency. So anything that the Space ISAC can do to improve attribution, to improve clarity, what is happening? To whom is it happening? What effect is it having? Who may be causing it? Why might they be doing it? I think contributes to the kind of transparency and signaling that helps us avoid miscalculation. And given the size of the forces that are available to global powers today, I think the avoiding miscalculation and avoiding mistakes related to attribution and intention is more important than it's ever been. That given the stakes now, you know, in, in today's world of great power competition, you simply cannot afford uh, a lack of transparency that leads to a miscalculation. Frank, Sam, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Laura, um, for our opportunity to speak out to your audience about the importance of the space system, space critical infrastructure, and being able to provide transparency to what's happening on a global basis. I'll be back next week. Understandably, the effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on space, business, and defense will continue to dominate coverage. And for the latest defense analysis, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to stay abreast of what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Kava's Ships. The Downlink podcast is available on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.